Well, good morning, LCM. Today is Sunday, August 2nd, 2020. What an incredible season that we are in, not only here at LCM, but in the entirety of the One Association and the world around us. I know, I know that you've been taking advantage of this time over the last few weeks and months to not only grow in your depth of knowledge, but also in your depth of character. Man, today is going to be an important day for us as a church. We're going to cover an important topic here today that most of us haven't really considered. And after you realize how important it is, uh, it may do to you what it's done to us. And wow, say, wow, how have we missed such an important topic and concept in the word? But we're going to help you today. God has given your pastors a focus that is one of the most practical topics and most important practices within your Christian walk. Come on, we're going to have a good day today. We are. Hey, for those with eyes to see. It is clear that the circumstances are all around us are acting as a catalyst. Acting as a catalyst that are bringing to the surface important issues that must be dealt with inside of our own hearts. So your pastors see the need for us to get back to some basic principles. Back to the foundations that have built this house, built disciples, restored marriages, and even started and planted ministries. We're going to spend the next several sermons discussing a foundational principle of the kingdom that few have good grasp of and understanding. We're going to zero in on 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and begin to fully understand how to be fully trained in godly sorrow. Say godly sorrow. Godly sorrow. So today's sermon title is Godly Sorrow, The First Step. Amen. Let's quickly jump into the heart of the matter and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And when you find verse 10, say first steps. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10. It says this. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Wow, with that kind of start to our sermon today, I'm going to let that sink in for a second. Yeah. If you are walking in worldly sorrow, it only brings death. But let's focus on the godly sorrow part of this. Isn't it amazing that we're talking about godly sorrow? Now, I'm going to tell you in advance, you're going to have to fight the tendency to want to think that we're just speaking about repentance only. We're talking about something that gives more than just repentance. It brings repentance. Come on now, if you ever talk to Baj, you'll start to understand the difference between bringing and taking. (laughs) Take this away from me, bring me what I want. Godly sorrow is bringing repentance towards us. See, already, you should start having light bulbs that go, no, I think I was thinking about me coming to the altar in repentance to find godly sorrow. We're saying that godly sorrow is what brings repentance into your life. Yeah. Let's put this first slide up on the, on the screen because I want you to see it. Godly sorrow brings. Everybody say brings. Brings. It brings repentance. How can you even have repentance unless it's been brought to you? Oh man, we're going to get into that. We're going to understand what godly sorrow brings, but it doesn't just stop there. It not only brings you repentance, if that's all godly sorrow did, I promise you, we still want to study it. We still want to enact it in our life. But it leads, somebody say leads. Leads. It leads to salvation. 
Not just at an initial starting point, but how many of you have figured out that you need to get saved every day? That you got to have the Lord help you every single day. Yeah. Not just, I'm glad He started it somewhere back in my past, but I need Him today, and I'll need Him tomorrow. This godly sorrow will not only bring repentance, but it will lead you to salvation. To be able to complete this race. That everything that you need can be found in God through His godly sorrow. But that's not even it. No. If it just bought repentance and led you to salvation... It might be the most valuable thing that you've ever not studied in the Bible. (laughs) Just being real. But it leaves no regret. What a gem. Anybody have feelings of regret right now for things you've done in the past? Mm -hmm. Do you know what that means? If you've been a believer and those things that you've done in the past were not, you know, before Christ, back when you were building your testimony... See how how I did that? But they were last week or last month, long after you said that you've been spirit-filled and walking with God. You know what that means? That means in that area, in that topic, you haven't walked in godly sorrow, but you've been walking in worldly sorrow if you still have regret left in you. Come on now. We're going to get it. We're going to help you walk through this. Y'all are like, yeah, that's good. No, we're going way over your head, but we're going to drill down. We're going to make sure that we get this. Godly sorrow brings repentance. Everybody say, brings repentance. Brings repentance. Leads to salvation. Leads to salvation. Leaves no regret. Leaves no regret. Are you telling me that in the present, God brings repentance? That in my future, it's assured because he's going to lead me to salvation? And even my past gets taken care of because it leaves no regret? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying to you. Man, what a powerful verse. What a powerful verse. Anybody have this quilted on a, on a pillow in your house? Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> church, this is a letter that was written, written to the church at Corinth. To the church. Everybody say, to the church. To the church. What do you miss when you're just not in church and in the house of God? Mm. It was written for believers, by believers, about the believers. Yeah. Godly sorrow and worldly sorrow are both about in the house of God. For the believers to understand. This is not just godly sorrow when you get saved and it was worldly sorrow before. We're talking to you today. Somebody look at your neighbor, tap him on the shoulder, say, he's talking to you. As a matter of fact, you're going to find that this church has succeeded in producing godly sorrow in their lives. Man, we want to follow this model today. See, worldly swaddle... Worldly sorrow only swallows you up in death, but godly sorrow will swallow you up in resurrection power. Come on. Are you ready to start understanding the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow? Are you sure? Because some of y'all are like, if you already know this, we'll just hand you the mic. It'll be all right. We got to know this today. We got to be able to implement this in our life. By the way, I'm just going to throw this nugget in right here at the beginning. Not even going to wait for later on. So get ready. Godly sorrow is measured in the between times between you coming to this altar. Come on. Say it again, Pastor. Godly sorrow is going to be measured in what you do between your trips to the altar. Come on. Of course we're going to push for an altar call at the end of this. Of course we are. We're LCM. What else would we do? (laughs) Like we all got it. This worked out and we don't need God's help on it. 
But we're also pushing you to understand it's what you do in between. It's pushing you to understand that godly sorrow shows up when you stand up from your place at the altar, and it's what you do next. Come on, let's look at the next verse. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. Okay, let's get this, let's get this straight. What Pastor just did is that he rolled up a garage door of understanding that is now going to lead us to a treasure trove of revelation. So when we're looking at brings, leads, and leaves, it is going to display itself in what godly sorrow produces. Because what our aim is this morning and every single day that we exist is to bring about resurrection power in our lives and in your lives. But in order to do so, we need the ability to discern between us walking in worldly sorrow and us walking in godly sorrow. And a lot of times that is confused and mixed up. You attribute godly sorrow to yourself, but you're all, but you're instead walking in worldly sorrow. So as we read this verse, I want you to keep this in mind. This is what godly sorrow produces. What earnestness, say earnestness, earnestness, what eagerness, say eagerness, eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, say indignation, indignation. what alarm, alarm, what longing, longing, what concern, concern, what readiness, readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So as we were studying with our disciples, we noticed a very clear structure in the way that these um, fruits, these produces of godly sorrow display themselves. Let's pull up the next slide. Oh, look how beautiful that is. I mean, artistic work at its finest. Simplistic enough for us to be able to get this. For those of you who have been studying with us and been taught by us as disciples, you know that this structure is known as a chiastic structure. It begins on the left-hand side with earnestness. It then goes to a pinnacle of alarm in the middle and then rises on the right-hand side to the readiness to see justice done. Here's the point. When you're looking at this chiastic structure as it relates to what godly sorrow produces, you have to start with earnestness. There's no other place to begin. Say that again. You have to start with earnestness. You cannot start at any other point on this chiastic structure and expect to have the results that come after it. When you have the right starting point and you work through each one, you will arrive at the full produce of godly sorrow. See, but what this requires is that you cannot skip steps. Right? You cannot work around and justify why you need to get to indignation and not have to start at earnestness. We're going to hone in on this this morning. Your pastors are going to help you this morning. We're going to help ourselves help you help us help you. Well, what this requires is that you must have an accurate assessment of what kind of sorrow you live in. When you're looking at this chart, as you're hearing us teach and preach and talk all about your business up here on stage... We want you to rightly assess which one are you walking in and get to the point you're walking in godly sorrow. I just want to tell you that if you gave me this list of seven items, I don't know that I would have picked earnestness as number one. Mm. I think I would have wanted to pick something else. But it's amazing. We don't get to pick what we want. You don't get to start in this process where you're like, I really like readiness to see justice done. Nope. <laughs> That's the seventh step. 
You skipped a few, my friend. That's right. See, you may wonder why the sorrow in your life hasn't produced an overcoming power. Come on. Where it hasn't brought repentance, led to salvation, and left no regret in you. You hear that and you're like, yes, it will do that. But that's not the way it's actually been done. Yeah, we're going to tell you right now, you need the first step. Everybody say first step. First step. You need the first step of earnestness. We're going to show you what that is and we're going to take a look at what this godly sorrow will produce. Everybody say will produce. Will produce. You don't even have to guess at what godly sorrow will produce because the word of God tells it to you. The very first thing on our list is earnestness. Everybody say earnestness. Earnestness. This is the first step. Let's show you the next slide. This is actually the word in the Greek. Spude. You're welcome, you Greek speakers. Here's what the word means. It means to have a speed. Oh, yeah. An urgency. Mm -hmm. To hasten. That's a good old, uh, old timey word right there. To have diligence in what you are doing. Let me give, just give it to you on the last line of the slide. The LCM definition <laughs> for earnestness. That you need to have a speed, an urgent and diligent effort in everything that you do. Come on. Now come on now. Y'all are, y'all are like, alright, that's a good, that's a definition. Okay, good. We don't quite know what that means for our life yet. We gotta be, gotta be faster. No, you need to have an earnestness about how you approach the word. But a speed for what? An urgent, diligent effort in what? You haven't filled that part in, pastor. That's why it's hard for us to jump on board. You're just saying earnestness. (laughs) Yes, earnestness towards operating in godly sorrow. See, this is what's going on. The first fruit, the first step of what godly sorrow produces is earnestness. Okay, this is going to settle in. It's okay. We're working, we're laying foundation. We're laying some foundation today. We need y'all to come along and walk along with us. The first fruit of what godly sorrow in you produces. The very first thing that's forged into your character. That's fashioned into your soul. That's formed into your life is the very principle of earnestness and urgent, speedy, diligent effort in what you, what has been put before you. Okay, we're going to help you. We're going to help you. But you got to keep walking with us. Let's begin to work our way through what that means throughout the scripture. Can somebody say amen? Amen. And what this looks like in our own lives. And you got to get ready to have the revelation bombs hit you in, in your heart. Because this is the first step before you can get as you're walking in godly sorrow. It's the first step that will bring repentance. It's the first step that will lead to salvation. It's the first step to something that will leave no regret in your life. Amen. Man, come on. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 12. With speed, urgency, and diligence, get to Exodus 12 and say first step whenever you're there. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, eat it in haste. Ooh, wow. Well, the context we're talking about here is, as it finishes, it is the Lord's Passover. This is the beginning of the liberation of God's people out of Egypt. Becoming a nation that is led by his presence and entering, or getting closer to entering the the promised land. See, the first step in the first feast that Israel is to practice year after year after year is that it begins with earnestness. It begins with a speed, a diligence, an urgency to do whatever God said to do to get right with God and get out of Egypt. This Hebrew 
word for haste, has a Greek cognate through the Septuagint. And that Greek cognate is spude. It is the Greek word that pastor just walked you through. So we see this is not anything just pertaining to Paul's understanding in the New Testament. This is the pattern that God has designed for godly sorrow to produce inside of us. It was given at the birth of the nation. And it is the birthing process of what godly sorrow produces in you. Yeah. This is an important concept. Let's look, let's continue to look in the law to see what the law says about earnestness. Let's turn to Numbers chapter 16. We're going to look in verse 46. Somebody say first step when you get there. Ooh, y'all are fast. Numbers 16 and verse 46. Here we go. Then Moses said to Aaron, take your censer and put incense in it along with fire from the altar and hurry. Yes. Somebody say earnestness. Earnestness. Hurry to the assembly to make atonement for them. Wrath has come out from the Lord. There's been a plague that has started. There is something that needs to be handled and it's got to be handled now. See, sin has already occurred in our story. By the way, in case you don't know the context of number 16, this is what's known as Korah's Rebellion. Where entire people and their families, the Bible says a unique phrase, that they were swallowed, the earth opened up, and it swallowed them alive down into the grave. Mm. Swallowed up by their own sins. Not only that, there were a group of 250 rabble. A rebellious rabble that had followed these men and were actually looking to them for leadership. You know what the Lord did? He swallowed them up in the fires of judgment. And then the next day, somebody say next day. Next day. Can you imagine all this happening in your life? And then the next morning, you know what happened? The people of God started accusing Moses and Aaron and said, you have killed godly people. Mm. Wow. Yes, since they caused the earth to open up and swallow them or caused fire to fall down. This is the situation that you enter as it, as it's saying, then Moses said to Aaron. By the way, you know what happens right after the people say that? God says, hey, Moses, Aaron, y'all move away. I had enough of this foolishness. I'm going to put them all down. I'll just start again. Just move out. You scoot over. I'm about to spank somebody. You don't want to get accident, you know, collateral damage in my spanking. I mean, not that it ever happened in my house. The people have been railing against the men of God, but these men are now turning and fighting on behalf of the people. Moses' response to God saying, move out of the way because I'm going to punish them all. Aaron, quick, hurry with earnestness. Grab your censer, put incense from it, and fire from the altar, and go, hurry, run, get out there where they need it. To the very people who were lamb-blasting them, and accusing them, and berating them, and putting them down. Moses and Aaron here are demonstrating some earnestness. They understand that the people who are throwing the accusations have no understanding of what they're doing. They're putting themselves in danger of hellfire. And they're going, my God, let's get out there with some earnestness. Take your censer and incense and hurry. Somebody say earnest. Earnest. you got to hurry to get out where you're supposed to. Let's look at verse 47. 
So Aaron did as Moses said and ran. He demonstrated earnestness. But not only that, where did he run into? Into the midst of the assembly. See, Aaron was acting out of obedience. A word that was given from God to Moses. Now a, de a demonstration of obedience in Aaron to go run. Demonstrate earnestness to run right up in the middle of everyone. As the verse continues, the plague had already started among the people. But Aaron offered the incense and made atonement for them. See, he didn't delay. There was no waiting on the right time. No deliberation. He knew that he received a command by God through the leadership that was joined with him. And he must act upon it now. And he ran right into the heart of the matter. Come on. What does godly sorrow supposed to produce first in you? It is this earnestness to get right to the heart of the matter. That to delay any longer means to allow death to continue to consume its toll. And because of that, there is no time to waste. That you got to get your feet moving just as Aaron did and demonstrate that first produce of godly sorrow. Y'all get ready. I feel like a coiled spring up here on the stage. Because <laughs> y'all are hearing Pastor Matt. Pastor is, is, is laying it down for you. But the revelation is about to hit you about this. You all think you already know this. You think you know a lot about number 16, and you do. But number 16, as it relates to godly sorrow, is something that you haven't considered. Come on. Nobody in the room has considered this. And I'm telling you, we have something for you. Let's just uh, dig in one more verse. He stood between the living and the dead, and the plague stopped. See, that earnestness to run out in the middle causes you to stand between that which is living like godly sorrow and that which is dead like worldly sorrow. You have to get out into the middle of this. Earnestness is defined by taking the first step towards what is living, towards godly sorrow. Yeah. Earnestness runs towards the actual problem. Yeah. Get it. Earnestness runs towards the actual problem. Yes. <laughs> Husbands, brace yourselves like men. Husbands, running to fellowship or to work to avoid the process of establishing shalom in your own home. Mm. You feel like a king on the job site, so that's where you want to run. And you feel like a court jester when you get home because you're not leading it right. Wives. Brace yourselves like women. <laughs> Just weathering a storm of what your husband is saying to you. Saying whatever you think your husband wants to hear so you can go back to your own agenda. Your own thoughts. Your own comforts. That's not earnest. Earnestness runs to the heart of the problem. How about this one? How about you just ignore an issue entirely because you're hoping that it'll just go away? I'm just going to close my eyes to that. You know, I have an inkling on the inside of me that this needs to be handled. I see a brother in trouble. I hear my wife that needs something. My kids need... I see something going on, but I'm just going to kind of pretend like I didn't see it and keep walking. That's not earnestness. An earnestness feels the moving of the Lord and turns towards it and runs at the situation. Yes. Not just looks at it, 
not just then begin to contemplate when the appropriate time for action should be. Anybody ever waited for a better time? Oh, yeah. This is not the right time. Yeah. This is not a good time. My, my, my spouse is tired. This may influence other things that I'd like to see happen in my own home. This is not the right time. My husband, he's tired and, and, and he may be grumpy. This is not the right time. That's not earnestness. And you're missing step one. Come on. Somebody say first step. First step. You're not even at step one on godly sorrow. Woo. Pastor, if I hear you correctly, you're saying that the only way to get this plague that's caused by rebellion to stop is to run into the midst of it and stand between the living and the dead? That's exactly what you have to do. You have to demonstrate earnestness. Hey, let me get to some of the young disciples in the room, lest I'm just talking to husbands and wives. Get it. Running, your young disciples running to a busy schedule. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) It's hard to say that with a straight face. All you single young people, I just am too busy. (laughs) That's ridiculous. Okay. Young disciples running to busyness. To avoid the accountability and direction of a disciple maker in your life. Wow. Wow. That's not earnest. Deciding to make something else besides the issue the issue. Come on. I just don't like the way that you said that to me. Was what was said the truth? Yes, but I just don't like the way you said it, so therefore... I get to run away from the problem instead of running to the heart of the problem. The problem, if you pastors would just a little bit, it'd make it easier for people to hear the word of God. Yeah, that's not what we're doing. We're trying to get you to run to the problem. Right. Run to the heart of the problem. Yes. Run to the heart of the actual problem. That's earnestness. This is the kind of urgent, diligent action that can cause a plague to stop in your life, in the life of your family, in the life of the people around you. We need to be earnest today because it's our first step. Somebody say first step. First step. Church, do you hear the call this morning to urgently take the first step? Come on, it's not about just being busy with cleaning out your car. We're helping you clean out your heart this morning. So that resurrection power can be the result in everybody's life. Turn to First Chronicles chapter 21 and say first step whenever you get there. We're going to start in verse 8. Then David said to God, I have sinned greatly by doing this. Now I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. See, what we're dealing with right here is David, he stepped out and took a census when God said not to. And there was a consequence as a result of his sin. But do you see the godly sorrow within him when he says, I have sinned greatly by doing this? See, what godly sorrow pursues is to take responsibility, quickly take responsibility, to quickly take the blame for what you actually did. Worldly sorrow resorts to blame shifting. Worldly sorrow wants to put it on some other person, some other condition, some other circumstance of why you did what you did. 
But he steps up and says, nope, I have sinned greatly by doing this. There was no element whatsoever of David saying, if only I was warned by Nathan the prophet ahead of time, then I could have, you know, been averted from this. There was no blame shifting, no diversion of responsibility. In addition to this, there's no gunny sacking. There's no stored up of a record of justifications of why he could do what he did. This is where you get in trouble a lot. Is that you already have a predetermined justification for what you really want to do that is not God's will. But within David, there's no self-justification. There's no reserving the right to defend yourself. Because that's really what gunny sacking is. I'm going to store away all these little moments where at any point in time, I can pull this out and spare myself of having to take responsibility. There's a scripture I just want to refer to that's personally, it's, it's on my card and it deals with my own heart and my own actions about gunny sacking and defensiveness. And it's wrecking my soul. It's Matthew 16, 25. And it says, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. You dig into this. You study some of the wordings in Greek and how it relates to Hebrew. And it reads something like this. Whoever wants to save his breath, his soul, his spirit will lose it. But whoever will lose his breath, his soul, his spirit for me We'll find it. Well, what gunny sacking, what blame shifting does is it is robbing you of resurrection power. It is robbing you of godly sorrow and the resurrection power that comes along with it. It is dwelling in worldly sorrow, which is only one thing. That's death. See, I want to be like David. I want to take full responsibility for my own actions so that I can begin to experience that resurrection power that's demonstrated in an earnestness, an urgency to want to get this right. Lord, I will do whatever you ask me to do. And what we see in David's life is that his words were proved right by his actions that followed. Anybody really good at blame shifting in here? Anybody good at uh, gunny sacking in here? Both of negative characteristics in someone else and your own positive characteristics? David did not sit here and go, but God, I'm a man after your own heart. But God, look at the many things that I have accomplished for you. He just said, ah, I'm in trouble. Look what I have done. I have sinned greatly. Let's go down to verse 13 in the same passage in 1 Chronicles 21. David then said to Gad, not to God, but to Gad. I have to let my southern accent be more clear here. I am in deep distress. Let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for His mercy is very great. But do not let me fall into the hands of men. David is operating in earnestness here. The Lord has come to him and said, you pick your poison. You can have three years of famine, three months of being chased by your enemy, or three days of of a plague from the very hand of God. By the way, earnestness has an understanding of what David does here as well. The cost is what the cost is. 
You're not going to get to get around. You think it, it had less effect because it was in three days? Don't you think that there would have probably been a predetermined amount that it was going to happen over a three-year famine, a three-month siege by your enemies, or three days in God's hand? You think the price changed? No. Earnestness causes you to come in and go, I cannot avoid the price that must be paid. I don't want to avoid the price that must be paid. My God, just let it be from your hands and your hands alone. That is an earnestness. See, if you're still trying to change the cost, you have not started yet in godly sorrow. Come on. It has not yet produced anything in you. I want to make something less of this problem. I mean, I know I did it. I mean, I'm not saying I didn't do it, but can we work? Can we negotiate the price here? Is this a negotiation that we have? No. Earnestness says, give me the full price. I'll pay it all. I'll do it right now. And I'll run towards doing it. Amen. This is the type of sermon that you got to let sink in. We are, we are working hard all the time at moving you to a direction. But what I feel like today is, is it's chipping away at some big, giant yes. problems that you've had in your life. And we're going to keep chipping away at it. And, and every time we hit it, it's going to crack it some more. And it's going to cause things to break some more. Do you understand what I just said and say, you can't be fighting about the cost? Earnestness, you just run towards paying the full requirement of it. Just let it be in your hands, Lord. I'm not going to drag this out to a three-year issue. I'm not going to be shamed in front of my enemies and make this a three-month issue. I'm going to jump in with earnestness and demonstrate and deal with the heart of this issue. And let's do it now. Let's go ahead and just get it all done with now. Because this is earnestness. I want it. I'm running towards it. I'm not trying to appease anything else other than the God of all creation and make him happy with me again. What a different approach for us, church. Come on, let's be honest with this. Let's look down at verse 16. David looked up and saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth with a drawn sword in his hand extended over Jerusalem. See, David's eyes were lifted up. And what did he see? He saw the true nature of the struggle. He saw the consequence on God's people for his personal sin. But one thing that's very unique is that David was not being guided by guilt in this. He was being guided by godly sorrow. He wanted not only his own personal salvation, he wanted salvation for all that were being affected by his personal sin. Well, what do you do? How do you respond to your personal sin? Do you want to just clean up your act, avoid your personal responsibility and consequence? Or do you want to lift up your head, look at the situation, assess it rightly and say, Lord, not just for my salvation. I want salvation for the rest of my household. I want myself to get in right order so that my family can get in right order. I want myself to get in right order so that those that are around me, my disciples and even my work in my workplace, that they can experience the same godly sorrow that I'm working through right now. But watch how this continues. David didn't do it alone. David, then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell face down. Well, what does that look like when godly sorrow is taking the first step of being earnest, 
is that you are quickly going to go get those your life has held in accountability to. You are running to them and say, I have done wrong. Please help me. Please join me in this repentance that leads to salvation, that leaves no regret. I want to get this right before God, and I cannot do it by myself. The trap that you fall into all the time is that you come down to the altar. It is a private matter, and it stays a private matter. There is no transparency. There is no vulnerability that says, I need your help. And I know that one day you will need mine. Oh, we have some powerful, wonderful elders in this house. Can I tell you the wisdom and counsel that they have? That they're not looking to put you to death. They're looking to help you put your sin to death. They're looking to help you experience godly sorrow that swallows up guilt. Let's continue in verse 17. David said to God, Was it not I who ordered the fighting men to be counted? Am I the one... I am the one who has sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Oh, Lord, my God, let your hand fall upon me and my family. And do not let this plague remain on your, on your people. Godly sorrow within David was with, stood up to say, I am going to earnestly pursue a cost that I, is never too high. There is no price too high to pay. Whenever you are looking for godly sorrow to produce earnestness inside of you. In addition to that, there is no place too sacred to get right with God. That wherever you are standing, that is the place to begin to demonstrate earnestness to get right with God. Do you guys understand that this is David who has an eternal covenant with God that must be filled, fulfilled through he and his family? Do you understand what he's saying here? He's saying that even the nature of your eternal covenant, I realize I can't skip ahead of that. I have to deal with this now. Yeah. My future, the future fulfillment of your covenant matters on what I do right now. Yeah. That's an earnestness that we've got to get a hold of today. When he says me and my family, he's talking about the family that God has designed to rule all of Israel said, hey, let it fall upon me. We were built for this. We were built to take the responsibility. We were built to demonstrate the leadership to all of Israel. Don't let it fall on them. Let it fall on me. And what is he putting on the line? He's putting on the line the legacy, the generations that are to follow. But he knows that this is the only way to get right with God. David fully acknowledged that he was deserving of death. But in no way was he looking to avoid it. He wasn't running from accountability. He was running to accountability. But that wasn't just in lip service only. It was demonstrated in action, a sacrifice that had to be made. Let's look at verse 18. Then, somebody say then. Then. Then the angel of the Lord ordered Gad to tell David to go up. Somebody say go up. Go up. And build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arun of the Jebusite. Then. Then, somebody say then. Then. Subsequent, after, once he demonstrated earnestness, then he got the instruction on what he was supposed to do. Tell me we don't try to skip this first step and jump into doing something to make us feel better about our sin. 
We haven't shown and demonstrated the earnestness. We want to skip towards, tell me what I got to do. Tell me what I got to do. Just tell me what I got to do. Pastor, what I got to do, I sin. Tell me what I got to do. Elders, I, I sin. Uh, come, come punish me. Whip me on my Do something. Help me to do something. Come yes, on. you have to do something. But it's then that you have to do something. Come on. Go up and build an altar was after David showed earnestness and God saw the earnestness and then... Yeah. The angel of the Lord told him what he must do. You can't get this out of order. Come on, I know this church. I know you and you know me. We know our families. We know our strengths. We know our weaknesses because we're family. This is the way this is supposed to be. Don't tell me you don't skip the first step. Don't tell me you don't come up here and ask us questions that you should be figuring out and you just never have the earnestness to pursue it. Now you need somebody else just to tell you what to do. Mm. Don't don't tell me that doesn't happen in this house, but we're going to fix it today. We're going to get our first step in order. So then David went up in obedience to the word that God had spoken in the name of the Lord. When he demonstrated earnestness, the earnestness of godly sorrow with urgency, with speed, with diligent effort, then God sent instruction. But the truth is, is why don't we do that more? How many times have we let guilt Guide us instead of godly sorrow. Come on. You notice I'm even slowing down my pace because I want you to hear what I'm saying. This is good. If you let this pierce your soul, it'll change your walk. How many times have we let guilt guide us instead of godly sorrow? We might have been speedy, all right. We might have increased our pace, all right. But our urgency was driven by more of our own selfishness and fear other than godly sorrow. And here's what I mean. i got to do whatever it takes just to get back to normal. I'm feeling the pressure. I don't like this. There's there's something on. i got to get this off of my shoulders. Let me me take the uncomfortableness of this moment away. I'm just trying to alleviate the pressure of my own consequences come on come on no wonder godly sorrow isn't working in your life because it's not godly sorrow it's your own selfishness to feel better about yourself again i don't like feeling like i'm a failure let me hurry up and fix this but you skip the earnestness part yeah This is why we fall back into the same sins over and over and over and over and over again. Because you never started with an earnest heart. You never started with an earnest life. You're just trying to get the circumstances and get everything back to, let's just get back to normal. It's a little tense. I don't like tension. Let's smooth it out. Let me find the quickest road to get back where I want to get. Because it's about where I want to get, isn't it? Or is it about the earnestness that's required to see what God may say to you and you must do? Mm. What do I need to do, Pastor? You need to start at the first step. You need to run right to the heart of it. You need to take full responsibility for what's going on. See, none of those things are godly sorrow. Even though it may, in fact, quicken your pace. Mm. You do get a little bit more urgent for like two weeks until it fades out again. That's not 
earnestness. That's trying to alleviate your own guilt. That's you being guided by what you're feeling and what you want. And it's not earnestness because earnestness doesn't go away. It becomes part of your character because it's what godly sorrow produces in you. It's not for a moment that you're like, I am earnest about this situation. That's not godly sorrow. Because it's not bringing you to repentance. You're apologizing like a boss. But you're not repenting. You feel bad, but you never turn towards righteous deeds and they become part of your life. Then you haven't repented. Why? Because you're not, it hasn't been brought to you by godly sorrow. You're not leading to the sea yourself in the salvation of that area that you keep failing in. I'm saved. It led me to salvation. I'm talking about today. I'm talking about the issues in your family, with your wife, with your husband, with your kids, at the job. I want you guys to have no regret left when this is done. When you rightly walk in this, you don't even have to regret those things. Why? We're going to keep talking about that. Don't just simply become a peacekeeper trying to ignore the situation and move on. You gotta walk in godly sorrow. Yeah. Come on, let's see what the prophets have to say about this. Let's turn to First Samuel chapter twenty-five. Church, I want to. We want to remind you of something. As we're walking through this and really focusing on the first step of earnestness, I want you to really contemplate on the monuments of success in your life. Those times when you did have godly sorrow and you didn't return back to that same sin. You conquered it, you're standing on it, and you're actually helping other people get free of it. That is a a fruit and a, a, a produce of you experiencing godly sorrow. But this can't be a checklist. You can't check these things off and say, I did that, and therefore I no longer need to pursue it. This is a constant pursuit of godly sorrow. Because what we're looking for is eternal rewards as a result of it. You know, you know, like that moment you were born again, but also that moment last week when it was genuine, it was authentic from heaven. Godly sorrow struck your heart and mind, and you left that sin here at the altar. In between the altars, you continued walking in victory. We're looking to put sin down for good in every area of your life so that victory is the outcome. In 1 Samuel 25, we're going to begin to read in verse 18. I want to preface it with this. 98% of the people in this room are familiar with this passage because of the way it relates to Abigail and the ball carts. We've used it in every bit of our marriage counseling, and we use it in our one-on-one discipleship. As we read this, I want you to keep clearly in mind, this is about your internal natures, your divine nature and your sinful nature. Abigail lost no time. She demonstrated earnestness. It was that first step to be able to bring resurrection power. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, Five seas of roasted grain, a hundred cakes of raisins, two hundred cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them on donkeys. 
Whenever she began to pursue right order with God, she earnestly lost no time and was willing to give above and beyond to do whatever it took. Not just to get herself in a position of salvation, but her entire house in the position of salvation. Let me break this down the way it relates to, to us, our everyday life. See, the man and woman of God who are spirit-filled and spirit-led, you lose no time. The Spirit of God will begin to tap on you. Do it now. Do it now. Do it now. Keeping our hearts soft and pliable and sensitive to the Word and to the Spirit of God will give us the right discernment to act on what the Spirit and Word is directing us to do. But I want you to notice something as we read ahead in verse 19. Then she told her servants, go on ahead. I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. Now, remember, I prefaced it, that what we're speaking about is our divine nature and our sinful nature, the Abigail and the Nabal. Godly sorrow does not take time to consult with the sinful nature. How many times have you deliberated because you were having dinner with your sinful nature? Oh, I got to fix this plate. We got to sit down. We got to discuss this. We got to think this through. We need to negotiate the terms of how this is going to play out. If I do confront this issue, if I do urgently pursue, man, that's going to result in some, some kickback. But this is what it looks like. We have our Abigail in the ball carts, right? Earnestness is wasting no time to take out your Abigail card. Identify what in your sinful nature is hindering shalom in that moment. And then seeking to crucify that sinful thought, that sinful emotion, or the sinful action. What does godly sorrow look like? Putting your hand on your card and taking it out immediately. Staring face to face with your sinful nature, not having a conversation with it, not deliberating with it. This, this really is pertinent to how you relate to people that you respect and that you love. And this is what I mean. When it's someone that you really care about and you care about what they think about you, you deliberate. You're not transparent. You take your time. And you skip the first step of just being earnest. You want to get to the point where we're all good again, that you love me, that you affirm me. But you haven't taken the first step just to be earnest, to look at your own sinful nature. And this is how it plays out. I don't know why we need to use these cards, these Abigail and the ball cards. They don't work. They're dumb. I've heard those very words. I don't know why we need to use them because it's not sincere. It really doesn't address the problem that I'm most concerned with that justifies myself. Mm. Here's why the cars don't work for you. They're not working for you because you never intended to start with the first step of being earnest when you took them out. They don't work for you because you never intended on being diligent and speedy to deal with your own sinful nature. 
You're doing it out of obligation in order to show that you are doing what is righteous and now we just need to move on to get to what you're really concerned about. Let me tell you, saints, the cards are not the problem. Your absence of godly sorrow is. Skipping the first step is. But let me tell you what the heart of the pastors and the leaders are. We want to help you get godly sorrow this morning. We want to help you experience resurrection power through godly sorrow and help you put to death your cyclical patterns of worldly sorrow. That same fight that happens again and again and again. It's not about the car. It's not about the clothes. It's not about the choice of food. It is about your application of using the cards that pertains to the first step in godly sorrow. Being earnest to do whatever God tells you to do. See, worldly sorrow, worldly sorrow wants you to wallow in self-pity and self-loathing. I know, I'm just not good enough and I can't do this. You know what godly sorrow does? It loses no time to take the first steps towards denying yourself, taking up your cross and pursuing Him. It wastes no time of taking responsibility for your actions and being willing to do whatever God says to do about it. Worldly sorrow focuses on the fact that sin won and you lost. You're a perpetual victim to your own sinful nature. Godly sorrow urgently pursues the love of correction. Because it's only through the love of correction that you can begin to start getting victory over your sin. Pastor Wade, I, I'm not getting this right. Show me. Where am I missing it? I want to know. And that's minutes after it happened. Worldly sorrow, it wants to weigh you down with the thought that your self-righteousness failed you. I thought I was doing everything right. I had all my ducks in a row. I had everything in line. I was working diligently to have everything righteous before myself. I mean, God. There's somebody like that. Their self-righteousness failed them. His name was Judas. He had everything in line behind the scenes. He went and set everything up. The Messiah, I'm going to force him to do what I expect him to do. And his self-righteousness led him into death because he was full of worldly sorrow. But godly sorrow produces a diligence to return to the good that you know you ought to do. This looks like Peter being restored by Jesus. And Jesus telling him, go feed my sheep. And then days later, he's the one that stands up during Pentecost. And he declares the good news of what they just experienced. He experienced godly sorrow that brought about resurrection power inside of him. Yeah. And he began to lead the whole church in Jerusalem with that same resurrection power. What your pastors and what your elders are going to be done, what we have been doing, are doing, and will do, is that we are constantly looking to measure you with godly sorrow because that's the same measure that God is giving us. And we want resurrection power in you to break the cycle of worldly sorrow. Come on. That's, somebody say, that's good. that's good. Verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she quickly, with earnestness, got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. You got to quickly leave all the remnants of your human nature behind. That sinful nature. Pastor, I've had restrictions in my life, but I've been doing good for like a whole six and a half minutes. Can I go ahead and go back to what I wanted to go back to now? That's not earnestness. No. Perhaps the reason you're doing good is because you left those things behind. 
All right. Verse 24. She fell at his feet and said, My Lord, let the blame be on me alone. It was the sinful nature, the Dumbal nature, that actually committed the crime. But the Abigail nature, in earnestness, says, yeah, it's all my fault. It starts with me. It goes nowhere else but here because I am earnest and I will get my life right before the Lord. Psalm 51.4 says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. When was the last time you looked in the mirror? When was the last time that you looked in a mirror and thought, wow, that was an evil thought? That was an evil action? Because that's showing some earnestness inside of your life. Or you're always like, well, that was an insecurity. Well, that was their fault. Well, if only my life had been better and I had better circumstances and better past and and a better hope. And if if I just had something else, then I would do this right. Or do you just look at it and go, that was evil and it must be dealt with because that evilness is a direct sin against the Lord. Church, that is the beginning. Amen. That is the first step of earnestness that will show what godly sorrow is producing in you. See, we got to have this first step. God is right when he judges us. We just keep fighting him, showing that we're not actually in godly sorrow, but not in this house. No. We're going to get it right today. Somebody say first steps. First step. See, we looked at Moses and Aaron, King David and Abigail. You know, all three of these examples, they show a picture of an impending judgment as a result of somebody's sin. But here's the, 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 the eye-opening fact about it. All three relate to intercession for someone else. Intercession for someone else as a result of other sins or the effect of their own sins. But it demonstrates an urgency of bringing to repentance, leading to salvation that leaves no regret for others in standing in the gap for them. Turn with us to Proverbs 6 and verse 4. This is the attitude that we must have. One that is full of earnestness. Say earnestness. Earnestness. You've got to have this working in your life. Proverbs 6, 4 says this. Allow no sleep to your eyes. No slumber to your eyelids. Free yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter. Like a bird from the snare of the fowler. This has to be our attitude, church. This is the first step. Why should you be like a gazelle from the hand of a hunter? Because if the hunter gets more than a hand on him, the gazelle is finished. When that trap is closing in, you have to spring forward. You have to have speed and urgency to break through. You have to have an earnestness that causes you to say, now is the time. If I'm going to escape, it's going to be right now. I can't wait. I can't delay. Like the bird from the snare of a fowler. I've got to get out of this problem and I've got to get out of it now. Never to come back to it. That is showing an earnestness. Or what is the two problem? You either are assured of death or your captivity becomes your new home and your new normal. Mm. The bird can live just fine in a cage, can't it? But it's not the way a bird was designed to live. It might be getting food and water in the cage, but that's not what a bird was made for. 
You are not made to be held captive. You are made to be set free. And the first step of godly sorrow that brings repentance leads to salvation and leaves no regret is for you to have earnestness. Somebody say earnestness. Earnestness. Look, let me read Genesis 19, 21. This is the impending judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. God is speaking to Lot. And he says, very well, I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That is why the town is called Zor. The first step that God gives for godly sorrow to produce resurrection power is flee there quickly. Demonstrate earnestness. And the rest of it cannot be fulfilled until you reach that point. When thinking about that chiastic structure, you cannot get to the end of it unless you start at the very first step. Mark 9 speaks of a man who is crying out to Jesus to heal his son. Demonic problems are going on. The boy is getting thrown into the fire. Jesus, if you can, please come help me. Verse 23. If you can. If you can. Said Jesus. Everything is possible for him who believes immediately with earnestness the boy's father stood up and screamed and said i do believe help me overcome my unbelief amen Amen. that is the spirit of earnestness yes we got people in this house who could say i do believe in the lord that's why we're here we're serious about this but my god i have to immediately stand up and scream i need help in my unbelief Yes. I need help to get out of my worldly sorrow. I need help for godly sorrow and the first step of earnestness. Somebody say first step. First step. Luke 14, 21, Jesus is telling a parable. And it says, the servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered a servant, go out quickly, demonstrate earnestness, go to the first step. By going into the streets and alleys of the town and bringing the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. When there is a call to enter into the wedding banquet and those that they were invited have rejected it, there is now the first step that we must require of other people by acting quickly to go out in earnestness and proclaim this resurrection power, proclaim this godly sorrow, and invite them into the same resurrection power that we have experienced. Matthew 28 verse 5 says this, The angel said to the women, do not be afraid. (laughs) This is resurrection day. Resurrection day. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid. What a common phrase when heaven tries to kiss earth. When heaven and earth meet, don't be afraid. Let me tell you, church, don't be afraid today. Don't be afraid and already determined in some type of worldly sorrow that you can't do what we're saying. We're giving you one step. Somebody say first step. step. This is your first step. Well, what about, but what about, yeah, here's your first step. You're going to walk in earnestness. Do not be afraid for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. You're looking in the wrong place to find Jesus in that resurrection power. You're looking back in the grave in worldly sorrow to find out where Jesus is not. He's not there anymore because he's risen. Yeah. Just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples. How many of us in here want to run with the message? 
but we haven't yet experienced that resurrection power. We don't yet get the full resurrection power, but we're ready to go run and tell. We want to get up and go build an altar, but we've never demonstrated the earnestness that's required. Jesus has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. He's gone ahead of us, prepared a way for us, offered us a godly sorrow that will bring repentance, lead to salvation, and leave no regret. There. Somebody say there. There. There you will see him. There you will see him in the pathway that he's already prepared. Church, it's time for us to take the first step of godly sorrow. That's earnestness. That's diligence. That's speed. That's haste. That's a diligent effort. You gotta hurry to run right to the middle of the problem that's inside of you. That middle of, of who you are, where is the problem? You gotta get right there. Not running around, but getting right to the heart of the problem. You gotta rise up immediately. You gotta yearn to fall into God's hands no matter what it costs you. No matter the pain, you are not gonna get to shortcut the cost of godly sorrow and what it produces. You just know ahead of time what it will actually produce in you. You gotta lose no time. Amen. You gotta act quickly. It's not time to consult your flesh and what you think, what you feel, what you want to do. There is no time to be lost. This is the attitude of a man or a woman of God who has godly sorrow working in their life. Never looking to shortcut. Never looking to pay less than full price. Never looking to consult their flesh because you know that you can't trust in that. We have to be earnest today. Diligent. Urgent to deal with our own sin and our own sinful nature. The truth is, church, is we all want to skip past this first step. All of us do. Your pastors want to skip it. You want to skip it. We want to do something that feels better. That feels like we've taken care of the problem. This is how to take care of the problem. Amen. It's to let godly sorrow work in you and trust that if the Word of God lays it out, the Corinthian church did it. Paul is recognizing that. You can do it today, but you have to go through the first step to be able to get there. Let's turn back to 2 Corinthians 7 as we close. Second Corinthians 7.10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Where we're aiming all of our hearts and minds this morning is that we want to lose no time in getting back to the first step. As you're letting this word Settle in on your hearts. Allow the Holy Spirit to lead you. Allow the Holy Spirit to guide you. Not guilt, not shame. Let the Holy Ghost guide you to a point of, Lord, I will do whatever it takes. Help me get back to the first step. I don't want to waste any time. Stand to your feet. Let's put that last slide up. Here's where your pastors and elders are aiming our, our church right now. 
We want you to experience resurrection power through the means of godly sorrow. We want this to work inside of every person, every home, every disciple. We want to see this bear the fruit in your life so that we can all experience being brought to repentance. We can all experience being led to salvation. We can all experience leaving the guilt and shame and having no regret. We want your hearts to be restored back to God, but let's go back to the first step and be thinking now. Be set and determined. I'm going to do whatever it takes, whatever God says to do, as quickly as possible, because there is no means to lose time in this matter. Lose no time now. The altars are open. Mighty God, we pray that you begin the process of godly sorrow in us. Forgive us for skipping steps, Lord. Trying to move beyond what you're actually trying to do in our lives, Lord. Let us start where you tell us to start, with the very first step, the very first fruit of having godly uh, sorrow in our lives, Lord, which is the earnestness to address this and continue to address this as long as is necessary to see your victory. Lord, may your godly sorrow bring repentance. May it lead to salvation. And may it leave no regret in your children today. Move upon our hearts, mighty God. Not just for an apology here at this altar. But Lord, rather, a true beginning of godly sorrow and the fruit that it produces in us. In Jesus' name.